Our scripture reading today is Mark 8, 27 through 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is shamed of me and of my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed, and when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Good morning. We're continuing to look at this book of Mark now, and we're going backwards. We're going in reverse. We've said it at the start of most of the sermons in this series, probably all of them, but knowing the end of the story changing our view of the story itself. And I think there's nowhere that that is more true than in this passage today. And so before diving more deeply into the text, I want to echo and amplify something that Todd said last week about the structure uh, of Mark. And this is really a turning point in the book of Mark. Now, again, we're going backwards, so it's hard to tell that things are changing because uh, we're going in reverse. Um, Todd told you that the first half of Mark was chapter 1 through 8, and that is all about who Jesus is. And the second part, chapters 9 through 16, is about what Jesus has come to do. I'm going to add just a little bit to that framework um, because um, I re- this, this passage is so critical. I mean, this passage is so important. So if we think about that first part, who is Jesus, then there's an introduction, which is Mark, the first part of Mark 1. The Galilean ministry, which is the second half of Mark 1 through uh, the first half of Mark 6. And then Jesus' work outside Galilee, sometimes, oddly enough, as we'll touch on in a moment, in Gentile territory. And that's Mark 6, 14 through 8, 26, just before our passage today. And what this begins then, kind of weird, kind of begins, it's going in reverse, but what this begins then, if you're going forwards, is what Jesus has come to do. And the journey to Jerusalem starts with our passage today, goes through chapter 10, and then his death and resurrection are described in 11 through 16. Now, one commentator states that Peter's declaration of Jesus is a denouement, okay? And for those of you who remember from English 100 years ago in school, a denouement is an ending. But I found out there's another definition for the word denouement, 
Because I thought, that's odd for him to say that. It's not an ending. Because denouement can also mean the outcome of a complex series of events. Heretofore in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples and the others following Jesus and those opposing him have mainly been bewildered by who this man is. The only places before this, the only places before this where we see actual declarations of Jesus' true identity as God's Son is in the narrator's words in the introduction, by God at Jesus' baptism, and by demons who are interacting with Jesus. Yes, there are some people who express faith in Jesus, mainly non-Jews before now, but nobody else declares who Jesus is. So we're finally now going to begin to see who he really is. And since we're going in reverse and we know the end of the story, we sometimes hardly think much of Peter's confession. It's just not that dramatic and insightful. You kind of want to go, duh, right? I mean, good grief. But this passage is really a turning point. Another commentator calls it the continental divide. After we've gone through our text today, we will dive deeper then into who do we really think Jesus is and denying oneself. Let's pray. Lord, we need your guidance to help us understand your word, uh, to apply it to our lives and into our hearts that we might serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. As we turn to the text today, it says that Jesus and his disciples were in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Again, considering about what Jesus is about to do, this is kind of weird. Um, Caesarea Philippi is in Gentile territory. So the first place where Jesus reveals himself is in Gentile territory. And the first part of our passage today involves only the disciples. Jesus asked them in verse 27, who do people say that I am? And the disciples give the answers that they've been hearing. In chapter 6, after reports of Jesus' healings and exorcisms, Herod thought Jesus was some kind of resurrected John the Baptist. In the same chapter, Mark reports that some of the people thought he was Elijah or a prophet like one of the prophets of old. And I've always wondered... Why Elijah? I mean, you know, it's true. Elijah holds a special place, but you know, there's a lot of prophetic candidates that they could have been picking. But in first century Judaism, Elijah held a very special place. He had been taken up bodily into heaven in 2 Kings 2.11. And tradition, Jewish tradition of the day said he was, he, that occurred so he could oversee the deeds of mortals to comfort the faithful and help the needy. And then as Todd told us last week in Malachi 3 and 4, he was to return as the forerunner of the great and terrible day of the Lord. John the Baptist, a great prophet. Elijah, clearly the people both with and against Jesus don't really know who he is. And then we get the great question and the great answer. Verse 29, and he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. So Jesus presses in on the disciples. Not only have they seen these healings and exorcisms, they have seen the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Not only have they heard the parables, they've gotten the explanations of the parables. Jesus is now wondering, after seeing and hearing all this, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers for all of them, you are the Christ. Again, we know the end of the story and we think, of course he is. And while these are wise words that come from Peter, as we're going to see in a moment, he still doesn't realize what he's saying. 
Because oddly to our ears, Jesus warns them to tell no one. Why would Jesus tell them not to tell anyone? Well, we've talked about this before. It had to do with this expectation of the Jews in that day. They were hoping for a great warrior king that would kick out the Romans and bring about a renaissance of the Jewish kingdom. Todd read these words last week. They are actually the last words of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So the Jews of the first century thought the great and terrible day of the Lord was the day when God was going to come and judge and destroy their oppressors. So if Jesus now becomes known as the Messiah to the Jewish people of the day, then they're going to try to sweep him into power and join him in rebellion against the Romans, and that would be a disaster at many levels. Most importantly, because as we are about to learn, this was not the type of Messiah God was sending. So now Jesus will reveal what is to really happen and the type of Messiah he really is. Verse 31, Jesus begins to teach the disciples that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now this is actually not the last time that he tells them about his suffering and death. If you've been keeping up, Todd actually told us that Jesus told them twice in the last uh, two weeks in uh, chapter 9. And he also tells them in uh, Mark 10, which we didn't cover. But as we think about this and going forward, this is actually the beginning of this most difficult teaching. So in verse 32, the text tells us, and he was stating the matter plainly. Now, Jesus often speaks in parables. He often has to explain the parables to the disciples. Here, he was stating the matter plainly, clearly. Yes, he accepted their statement that he was the Christ, the Messiah, but he then plainly states, shockingly, that he will suffer, die, and rise again from the dead. Now, I think this is a good place to point out an event that's actually described before Mark 8. Um, as we go further in reverse, we're actually going to leapfrog this passage. We so often read the Bible chapter by chapter and don't realize the connections that make it such a beautiful book. Andy told us a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago, I can't remember exactly when, that the chapter divisions, to remember, the chapter divisions and the chapter headings are not actually part of the original scriptures. But we tend to read it chapter by chapter. And if you're like me, you kind of forget what you read yesterday, right? So we don't always make the connections we should. But in the first part of Mark 8, Jesus and the disciples encounter a blind man in Bethsaida. This sounds really strange, but Jesus spits on his eyes and then lays his hands on him. The blind man can see, but only partially. Chapter 8, verse 24, and he looked up and said, I see men. For I see them like trees walking around. Jesus lays his hands on him again. Now the blind man can see everything clearly. Difficulty seeing everything clearly. Does that sound familiar? What does Jesus tell the blind man who can now see? Mark 8, 26. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. In other words, don't tell anyone. Does that sound familiar? This is such fabulous writing by Mark. This healing event is a picture of what Jesus, uh, of what is about to happen with the disciples. They have been seen partially, and now Jesus comes 
and states things plainly and makes them see clearly who he is and why he is and what will have to happen. And they don't like it. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus. Peter's words are not given, but we can imagine what they are. He likely told Jesus, among other things, that you must be wrong. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what we signed up for. Don't you know, Jesus, the Messiah is to go to Jerusalem and lead the people against the Romans? Not go to Jerusalem to be killed. Now Jesus turns and replies so that all the disciples can hear. The rebuke from Peter was private, but Jesus turns and rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now, if we don't know the end of the story, these words truly make no sense, right? But if the Messiah is the suffering servant, if the death and resurrection of Jesus opens the door for man's reconciliation with God, to oppose this is indeed the work of Satan, the great deceiver, the great liar. Now, in verse 34, the audience expands again. Now he's speaking to the whole crowd and not just to his disciples. Verse 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Denying oneself, taking up one's cross. We're going to say more about that shortly. Now the next three verses, 35, 36, and 37, include the words life and soul in most English translations. In our passage in the, that's printed in the um, bulletin today, um, it says life and soul. You'll see that as we go in a moment. Surprisingly, though, at least to me, this word that's translated life and soul is actually the same word. It's actually the same word, psyche. I think I've really missed the point of these three verses in the past. Perhaps some of you have as well. You see, most of us in the West think in Greek philosophical terms, which separates human nature into the body and the soul and the mind. Moreover, we tend to think of the soul as that which lives on after the death of the body and mind. And finally, when we read the word life, we're more likely to associate it with the physical body and the things, our relationships, our objects, our possessions that make up our daily existence. So because of this way of thinking, I've tended to think about these, that these verses imply that you lose something in this life in order to get something in eternal life. In other words, I've kind of read it something like, and it won't make complete sense, but this is kind of how I understood it. For whoever wishes to save his current life will lose it. And I've read it as being something beyond my current life. But whoever loses his current life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his eternal soul? For what will a man gain in exchange for his eternal soul? Now let's not think of these in Western Greek-influenced minds, and recognize that the separation of human nature into body, mind, and soul is not biblical. In fact, the word psyche emphasizes the wholeness and oneness of human nature, and the best word for that is actually life. Life in its fullness. And indeed, if you read the Revised Standard and the New Revised Standard and the Revised English Bible, they use the word life throughout these three verses. Jesus then is not saying give up something now for something better in the future. He's saving, he is saying give up something now 
and in the future for something better now and in the future. What is Jesus wanting us to give up? He has already told us. He wants us to give up to deny self now and in the future. What is he offering in exchange? Life in all its fullness now and in the future. Our passage closes with what I've told you in the past is to me the most terrifying passage in the whole Bible. Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I don't know about you, but I must confess that I've been ashamed of Jesus in my life. I have not spoken up for fear of embarrassment. I have kept silent when I should have said something. And it is here that I really need to lean in and remember that knowing the end of the story changes everything. Because if you remember what we have already seen later in Mark, that's such an odd phrase. Remember what we have seen later already in Mark. That's, I, wrote, I wrote that and I just I said it out loud and I thought that doesn't make any sense, but that's really what we've done. All right, so let, let me start over, okay? If you remember what we've seen later in Mark, this statement actually foreshadows Peter's denial of Jesus and his shame as he wept after he did so. But also remember what happens to Peter after the resurrection, recorded in the book of John. At a morning fish fry, if you will, Peter's threefold denial is turned into Jesus' threefold commission to Peter to feed Jesus' sheep. So Jesus' death about which he is warning disciples in our passage today, has to happen. It is his death and resurrection which paid the price for Peter's denial and shame, and it has paid the price for my sin and for my shame. And for your sin and your shame. All right, we're going to spend a couple of minutes or a few minutes here thinking more deeply about a couple of things. First, I want to ask you, who do you think Jesus is? I mean, really, who do you really think he is? And the problem, frankly, is that we, like the disciples, have to decide on the way. In other words, we have to decide in this life who we think Jesus really is. Now, we may actually be in a better position than the disciples to decide rightly because we're on this side of the resurrection and the resurrection changes everything. But we, like Peter and the disciples, have to decide on the way as well. One commentator eloquently put it, significantly Jesus raises the question of faith according to Mark on the way of humiliation, rejection, suffering, and death. Faith and discipleship cannot be rendered from the sidelines, removed from risk. Jesus asks for a judgment about him in the midst of the journey, not at the end of it when all questions are answered and the proof is finally in hand. Faith is a judgment about Jesus and a willingness to act on the judgment in the face of other possible judgments. Indeed, for the disciples at this point in the gospel, faith will necessitate a choice contrary to the prevailing consensus of crowds and religious leaders. I would add for us, cultural elites. Faith, the commentator concludes, means actively following Jesus on the way not demanding signs or turning to go one's own way. Every person has to risk a decision 
about who Jesus really is. As I said, this decision is critically and obviously so for our eternal fate, but it's equally important for our lives now. Because your answer to the question, who do you think Jesus really is, will govern how you live your life today. The the reality is that many of us, I would dare say all of us at one time or another, all of us have wanted to make Jesus and the triune God out to to be who we want him to be and not who he really is. That's what Peter and the disciples and all the Jews wanted. They wanted a Messiah that would meet their needs and wants and remove the suffocating oppression of the, Roman, of the Romans. So to what, what do we want? In this day and age in Western culture, we, or okay, I'll say I, often want a domesticated God who will serve my needs and wants, who will make few demands on me, who will make my life easy and fun, free of pain and hardship. But life's not that way, is it? So when it's not, we tend to think of one of two things that are contrary to Scripture. We think, well, I've committed my life to Christ. I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm doing all the right things. Don't I deserve something for that? And when life is not that way we think it should be, we are angry. We're angry at God. We're angry at ourselves. We're angry at our spouses, at others, at the government, at the system, whatever. We're angry. Alternatively, when we're not getting those things, ease, pleasure, freedom from pain and hardship, then we conclude, I must be doing something wrong in following Jesus. This isn't right. So we try this technique and that technique. We follow this teaching and that teaching. We just work harder to gain acceptance from Jesus. We wear ourselves ragged trying to find the right formula following Jesus. So, we will give, so he will give us the things that we think we deserve. Both ideas are utterly wrong. As one commentator states, a wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. And that is as true for us today as it was for Peter and the disciples in Jesus' day. Todd touched on this last week. Jesus' messiahship is based on suffering humiliation, rejection, and death. Why do we think it will be different for us? Now, this does not mean at all that our lives should never have times of ease or pleasure or freedom from pain and hardship. God blesses us with things and with such things and such times. In our time and culture, seemingly, rather often for many of us, especially compared to other times in other cultures in our time, we are blessed with such great things. But we need to recognize them what they are. They're freely bestowed gifts by a gracious Father. They are not to be expected rewards to someone who has done something good. As I said, I often want a domesticated God who will serve my needs or wants. But what I have and what we all have is a non-domesticated, holy, triune God who has no needs and whom we serve. And the irony is that when we serve him and as we deny ourselves, we actually find all that we ever wanted. And that brings me to the second point I want to talk about a little more deeply. We are to to deny ourselves and take up our cross. So what does that mean? 
Well, I'm going to tell you, I think we have spiritualized this and trivialized this in our culture. We see the cross and jewelry and on tattoos. We sometimes use the figure of speech. He's bearing his cross for an inconvenience or a hardship. To combat that trivialization, let me just think, let us think about what it would have meant for Jesus to say to his original listeners to deny yourself and take up a cross. The cross was an instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanization, and shame. It represented Roman oppression and was applied to the lowest social classes. It was part of the Roman terror apparatus to punish criminals and quash slave rebellions. To put it bluntly, this would have been an absolutely appalling statement to his original listeners. Literally a matter of life or a horrible, humiliating death. So using this term for an inconvenience or even many of the hardships we encounter in life, I think is not to understand the significance of cross-bearing to the original listeners and readers of Mark's day. Similarly, I think we've misunderstood what it means to deny oneself. It is not to do without something. It is not to do without many things. It is not asceticism. It is not self-rejection. It is not self-hatred. Nor is even the disowning of particular sins. So what is it? As one writer put it, it is to renounce the self as the dominant element in life. It is to replace the self with God and Christ as the object of our affections. It is to place the divine will before self-will. So what does that look like in practical terms? I don't know what it's going to look like in your life. I don't know what it's going to look like specifically for you, but I'm going to give you a few general categories to ponder over the coming week about what it means to deny yourself. It might mean giving up our rights. It might mean giving up our need to be right, to win arguments. It might mean putting others first. It might mean practicing humility. It might mean serving others especially in lower social or racial strata than your own. It might, be, it might mean being really and repeatedly thankful for everything you have because it is all a gift. It might mean holding on to things and objects loosely. It might mean avoiding the race to get more things. It might mean spending time with others when you would rather be doing something else. And I'm sure there are many other categories. Now I want to ask you something. As I read through those categories, did something happen to you? It happens to me when I read through them. You might not have realized it, so I'm going to read them again. Pay attention to how you feel as I read this. I don't know what it will look like specifically for you in practice, but I can give us some general categories to ponder over the coming week. So for you and me, Denying oneself might mean giving up our rights, giving up our need to be right. It might mean putting others first. It might mean practicing humility. It might mean serving others, especially in lower social or racial strata than your own. It might mean being really and repeatedly thankful for everything you have because it is all a gift. 
It might mean holding on to things and objects loosely. It might mean avoiding the race to get more things. It might mean spending time with others when you would rather be doing something else. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read those things, I find that I relax. All right? Far from being another list of to-dos to make the Christian life hard, when I read these, I realize in my heart that this is how it should be and this is how I should be. How could that happen? Well, I think for two reasons. First, I think it's because we know that if we deny ourselves, if we don't worry about putting ourselves first, and if we do these things, then we'll be more likely to avoid our repeated experiences of the pain and failure of idolatry. As we so often say, we make idols of good things, objects, relationships, activities, pleasure, position. And as we so often have to remind ourselves, they will not give us meaning, they will not give us life, they will fail us and bring us pain. But second, and most remarkably, denying oneself also brings us the one thing that Jesus has promised us. He has not promised us ease or pleasure or freedom from pain and hardship. Jesus has promised us rest. Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And isn't that what we all want? Isn't that why we all pursue ease and pleasure and freedom from pain and hardship? To find rest? And so it is, ironically, amazingly, incredibly, to deny oneself is the route to Jesus' promised rest. As we think about the book of Mark, we can see that this passage is the great turning point. Jesus' true mission has now been clearly stated. It will end in what we have already seen, his death and resurrection. We have to decide who he is on the way before everything is completely clear while we see through a mirror darkly. When we commit our lives to Jesus, we can expect to have times of suffering and humiliation. But when we deny ourselves, not putting ourselves first, we will find what we most desire, rest. In this life, and in the life to come. May it be so. Amen.